change is the only constant in every aspect of our lives, be it how we work, how we live, how we learn. It forces us to make the right decisions without the choice of looking back at history and conventions to know what's right. I am Vikram Baskaran, and this is Chargebee's Champions of Change podcast, where we talk to changemakers who've walked before us, built businesses on first principles, and unearth their tips and tricks to identify change and turn that into opportunity. Remember, you're just one decision away from being a change maker. So in this series uh, of podcasts so far, we've seen a lot of product stories about that, that messy face in a business's uh, uh, growth from a startup to a scale-up and beyond when suddenly you, you, you hit all these pangs of adolescence where you're growing too fast and you have to figure things out. Today, we have with us Laura Marino, a true expert in this, CPO at True Accord. But Laura is a lot of things. She's a teacher, a board member at uh, Leading Women in Tech, a strategist and M&A expert. So, so happy to have you with us here, Laura. Thanks, Vikram. Happy to be here today. So I want to I want to start with your your journey at True Accord, and I, I think I think that's a that's a very interesting place to start because primarily you're in the business of debt collection, which is you know there's there's I I, I guess uh, a certain degree of empathy lies at the core of building a product when you're in, in in a space like that. So how do you how do you use or how do you see deep empathy at True Accord? So. Uh, True Accord is a very mission-driven company. Our mission is to help the millions of people who are struggling with debt to get on a path to financial health. And when you think about debt collection, it makes people think of this awful situation where people in debt have typically been harassed by debt collection companies calling them. And the reality is that debt collection should be treated like any modern financial service where consumers who are in debt are actually helped to get out of debt. We know for a fact that most people who are in debt are in debt because something happened to them, because they lost a job, somebody in the family got sick, and they had to spend all their money on medical bills. So our approach is to help people who are in debt get out of debt. And we do that by using AI and a great consumer experience to first engage with those people who are in debt and then help them find a payment plan that will allow them to pay with what they can and send them reminders and slowly help them get out of debt. And you do need to have a lot of empathy because it is starting with the fact that people who are in debt are not in debt because they didn't want to pay. It's because they had problems. How do you help them get out of debt? And people now expect the same way that you expect to do banking digitally. If you need to pay back a debt, it should be done the same way. So the whole approach is to look at debt collection as another financial service where the consumer has to be first. And what we know for a fact is that if we do well by the consumer, we help our clients collect more of the debt that they're collecting. Beautiful. Now, I want to I wanna, uh, switch gears and talk about a more generic question here, right? Like now we talk about startups and there's, there's of course, getting from, from that early stage to a product market fitment is a struggle. 
But that's a struggle that we talk about a lot, right? Most entrepreneurs, early stage startup founders, there's a lot of resources about early product market fitment. But then there's this, this next phase of scaling, which is equally messy, right? So what are, what are some of those things that you've seen businesses do wrong at that post-product market fit, early scaling phase? And what strategies would you suggest to kind of avoid these pitfalls? I think that the biggest mistake is that companies don't realize that they are entering into a different phase. And they try to continue to operate in the same way that they were operating in when they were still in this uh, startup early stage looking for product market fit. And the failure to understand that they need to make some significant changes and transitions as they enter this high growth stage is in many ways the cause of a lot of the failures for those companies. So when you think about the early stage and what startups are going through to get to product market fit, it's all about moving very quickly, just getting something quickly out to market to validate trying different things to see essentially what sticks. And you have a team that is very nimble, that's moving very fast. Communication is very informal because it's all about moving fast. But once you get to product market fit, and now what you need to do is to scale with this product that has shown success, you really need to switch to doing something differently. First of all, the company is going to start growing very quickly. When you hit product market fit and the uh, customers start coming in, you need to start growing everything, sales, customer success, of course, engineering and product. If you try to still operate in the same way, what you're going to end up with is a very chaotic communication. And now you need to start putting in place some more processes. And I know that for startups, process is sometimes a bad word because they think that it's going to slow them down. But if you don't have processes and you start doubling, tripling the size of the company, it's just going to be very chaotic. So you need to start putting some processes, but also from the product perspective, and I think that this is the piece that's most interesting for people who are in product, is from the product perspective, you also need to start looking at things slightly differently. In the very early stage, it's okay to uh, not focus very much on the scalability of the product because you're still trying to figure out what is the product that is going to succeed in the market. But once you get to high growth and you start adding hundreds and potentially thousands of customers, now you really need to start focusing on those things that were not as important in the early stage. And that is scalability. That is paying for technical debt. And technical debt is a combination of maybe shortcuts that engineering took in the early stage to get something out quickly. Uh, it may be an architecture that's not scaling, and it may be the lack of tools that would enable a services organization to do effectively the implementations and configuration of the product. And when companies don't realize, when product leaders don't realize that now it's time to invest in that, what's going to happen is that things are going to start breaking. 
And those customers that were so eager to get on board with a new product are going to now be unhappy. Engineering is going to be pulled into a lot of escalations and all of your plans of new functionality is going to be delayed. And then your sales team is going to be unhappy. So it's really proactively knowing now it's time to start dedicating bandwidth to those areas and letting everybody in the company know so that the expectations are set. I love how, um, you know, the answer comes down to process because it's, it's true. It's true. There's, I, th- I think, I think that's, that's like a repeating uh, theme that uh, we see, especially at that scale up phase where you're trying to transition from a tribal knowledge collected in a few people's heads to this kind of uh, a repeatable knowledge base, right? But you know that 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 transitionary phase is kind of weird because there's also this friction because you know uh, there's this feeling that a lot of things are getting in the way of efficiency. You cannot afford to lose that that uh, that speed, that pace that you've been maintaining as a startup. So, especially from a product and a product discipline point of view, how do you ensure that you keep up velocity while all of these moving parts come? Yes, and it is a balance. So you cannot come in and try imposing a lot of complex processes all by the sudden. That doesn't work. What you may need to start doing is bringing in roles that you didn't have before. In the case of product, you may start bringing somebody in product operations that is going to start helping the whole team be more effective and communicate better with engineering, with some of the other stakeholders. In engineering, here's where you may want to start really organizing the team better in squads. At the early stage, you may have a smaller engineering team and they are all doing a lot of different things. As the team grows, as the product gets more complex, you do want to start really focusing on organizing the team product and engineering in squads that can become more autonomous and more self-directed. That's really the only way to scale. You can't have a huge team all trying to do everything. So as part of that is where you can start putting a little bit of the processes of how those teams are still operating fast and in an agile way, but they may be getting better at documenting a little bit the code, for example. You may also start putting some of the meetings that ensure that the various squads at least are aligned so that while they are operating fast in their own area of the product, they are aware of dependencies. So you can start putting some of those processes without necessarily slowing down everything. The other piece, though, is on the technical debt side of things. That will definitely mean that the team will probably start slowing down in terms of completely new functionality. But there's where product has to communicate to the company why this investment is so important. And product and engineering need to partner to figure out where to start putting some of those resources. And yes, you could think of it as slowing down things, but it is the only way to really accelerate later. When when you have code that's not scalable, if you start ignoring that and trying to build on top of it, your engineering team is going to get bogged down fixing pieces. So I think that process can be brought in in a way that it doesn't feel like it's completely stopping what that speed that you had before, but more enabling it to continue, but in a more controlled way. 
I want to go off tangent here just a little bit for a second, right? Because um, I, I think I think you're absolutely right in the criticality of product ops. In fact, of ops in general, I think that's a a role that I think almost marks the coming of age of an organization as it moves from a startup to actually you know getting into that predictable scale up phase is when operations across every role becomes more and more critical. I just wanted to quickly uh, bounce off of you. What would your ideal product ops person look like? What would what exactly would you would you expect them to do every day? I've had different product ops people in different companies. I've had I have to say that right now I have probably the best product ops person I've ever worked with. She is able to actually go and understand where the bottlenecks are in terms of processes with other cross-functional teams. So we're trying to prioritize. We have a very complex business. Uh, we have a big team of people who are experts in the debt collection industry and financial services. We have a very regulated environment. And sometimes the various business groups have different views of things and the way that they are providing some of their input in terms of priorities has been really difficult for the product team to manage. So she's coming in to just start even organizing some of the communication with the cross-functional teams. In parallel, she has been working very closely with the engineering team and their technical program managers to really organize the information that we have in, we use JIRA, and we get a lot of questions about when, uh, what initiatives are we prioritizing? What, what is, uh, and so my team was always repeating a lot of the information. Well, we're organizing all of that information in a way that anybody in the company can go and start drilling down into the roadmap into further and further details to get to the description of what they want. That in itself eliminates so much time from the team just answering over and over the same questions. So it, it really is making the whole communication more efficient, more predictable, and making sure that everybody's on the same page. Beautiful, I love that. And now go, speaking about roadmaps, that's, that's again uh, a pretty huge um, word in itself, especially within within a software development organization, right? So what what exactly like what what would your ideal roadmap look like? And given that, you know, your roadmap has to be agile to what's happening in the market, it's it's going to have to flex and change. How much of it would you set in stone to drive predictability within the organization? And how much of that would you allow to be a little more with with a little more room to play? Yes, this is probably one of the trickiest balances, right? Because you cannot be operating in this old waterfall model where you're trying to predict and prepare everything you're going to build and get this very detailed requirements and then spend six months or nine months delivering. That doesn't work anymore. At the same time, you can't, especially if you're in B2B or B2B2C, you can't be operating in this, just try something, try the next thing. It doesn't quite operate that way. So the way that I look at roadmap is I see it as coming having a component that's tops down and one that's bottoms up. So tops down, you have a company mission and a vision. There is something that is a company you are trying to achieve. The next level is having company level OKRs, where a lot of companies are now moving to up OKRs. But the idea is that the company and the executives 
are defining what are the objectives for the company for this coming year. And those objectives reflect business priorities, whether you're focusing a lot on new sales or net retention of existing clients. Or in our case, we have to focus a lot on compliance as regulations change over the years. So once you have the company OKRs, then is where you want your teams to start looking at what are the strategic product initiatives that each of the teams needs to work on to best deliver on those OKRs. And that's more this bottoms up, uh, empower teams that understand their area of the product or their product, see how their initiatives are going to move those OKRs. And once you have sort of those strategic direction for each area of the product, then you can start getting to what are the specific initiatives that you're going to prioritize for the next quarter and the next. And then you are reviewing those at least on a quarterly basis. Typically, the OKRs shouldn't change dramatically during the year. The OKRs are relatively stable, but they still need to be reviewed. But the initiatives can then be a little bit more flexible because you may lay out a hypothesis, okay, this is the initiative that we need to do to move this OKR. And when you deliver, you're going to measure if in fact it did or not. And maybe then you prioritize for the next quarter something slightly different. But I think it's that sort of bottoms up, tops down that you want to be keeping in balance so that at the end of the day, what the product and engineering team are delivering are truly supporting the company mission, vision, and goals. Perfect, perfect. And that's kind of, yeah, theoretically that that makes, like, I, I guess that's how it should be today. But the practical difficulties of it, I, I, I think uh, that that's why we require uh, someone like you to be, you know, uh, running the product roadmaps and stuff. Now, slightly moving into another persona of yours, you're also, you've also been very active in evangelizing and bringing in more women to tech. And at this point, I'm going to ask you a very controversial question. Why is that important? Why is it important to have more women leaders in tech and especially in product, according to you? Well, I do believe that diversity is something that helps companies because the more diverse the team, the more opportunity you have to get people that look at a problem from different angles. And at the end of the day, what product and engineering are trying to do is solve problems in a way that delivers the value to the customers and to the business. And if everybody looks at the problem with the same angle, with the same background, you're probably going to miss a lot of things. So diversity across the board is important to bring more innovation, to bring uh, better solutions to problems. But I also think that in addition to the product, the way that women interact with uh, teams is slightly different the way with men. And you want to have that balance. You want to have a company where everybody feels comfortable that they their style is okay. What happens when women, especially in technology, are surrounded by a very large majority of men is there's a tendency to not speak up, to not feel confident about their knowledge. And so you are not really being able to use the whole capability of these women, and they may not feel happy at work. So I think that the more you can bring diversity and the more women can really participate in engineering the better it is for the entire team. Excellent. 
and i i couldn't agree more and especially especially the you know the the optics on the multiple perspectives the the varied perspectives you get by bringing in diversity into the org i think that that cannot be overstated but as a woman leader who's had to you know climb through the ranks and for for a very long time i'm sure you had to wade through a very imbalanced kind of a, a society especially in tech and product were there are, are there some of your experiences that you could share with other younger women moving into tech or trying to scale through tech and product roles what i would say is that you should be willing to take risks i actually was very fortunate that throughout my career i actually had great male allies who helped me progress in my career early on when i was a product manager at nuance i had a great relationship with the engineering leaders both the vp of research and development and the vp of engineering and as i started uh moving forward my career they actually were the ones who pushed for me to become the director of product management but what i also learned is that women tend to be a little shy in terms of having confidence in their own capabilities and are not as willing to say yes i can do it and take a big risk and i think that women have to do that if you don't take the risk to step up and say i can do this more difficult job i can step up to take on this big project people won't come to ask you to do it so i would say being willing to take risks and being willing to ask for help ask for help from colleagues from mentors so that you can feel like yes i'm capable of doing it sometimes women feel themselves are the ones who are holding them back so being able to feel, say yes i can and then looking for the support i think that it's something that helped me throughout my career excellent um and my last question for our, our session today it's about this yet another persona that you have as a teacher and particularly like i find teaching very fulfilling because every time you get to teach you kind of get to unlearn and learn some things you get you get to view some concepts from a very basic pair of eyes which for me a lot of times it it, it throws me off my tracks it's like oh oh my god i've i've always made these set of assumptions and this entirely new way of thinking have you had any of those experiences as a teacher where you've been like oh wow that's that's a refreshing way of thinking about this problem yes well going back to teaching i for me teaching is very rewarding i think that i've uh, been teaching for a long time before i actually got into software industry i was a civil engineer and i was teaching for a while at my alma mater in colombia and i love teaching and then after i moved really into software and product i've always kept in touch with my professors at stanford and mentored and helped teaching and i started then teaching product manager and it is it's very rewarding it's also very interesting to see what type of questions come in because as you say the questions force you to think about things potentially differently and right now i'm preparing a class for my alma mater in colombia i'm going to be teaching in july and as i do that i've been reviewing some of my favorite books about strategy and product management and 
it's interesting to reread those things and compare to my current team and the situation. And I get new ideas like, oh, yeah, of course, we could be doing this even better. So it keeps you, I would say, it keeps you thinking and it keeps you improving on your day-to-day work when you are feeling that you are also teaching other people. So it's very rewarding. And and I have uh, a lot of people that had worked for me in previous companies that uh, see me as a mentor. So they reach out to me for advice, for help. And uh, as I said, I think that this is a way that is rewarding for me because I know I'm helping them, but in many ways they're helping me by forcing me to think about things again. And that was that was awesome, Lorna. Thank you so much. Um, I I love this conversation because you know in about twenty minutes we were able to go from product to scaling organizations to operations to diversity to teaching to learning, and like the variety of subjects here. And I think with every one of them, there is a sufficient degree of depth that we were able to go into. So thank you so much for your time with us today. That was that was brilliant. My pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation and I hope that this is going to be helpful for people who are listening to the podcast. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will.